From WXXI News, this is Connections. I'm Evan Dawson. Our connection this hour is made outside the borders of the United States. And you might wonder, how does the world see the war that we've been talking about today on the program? There's not a single answer to state the obvious. There's not a single answer inside any border. But there are perhaps some commonalities. Here in the United States, you heard Congressman Joe Morelli last hour tell us that even in Washington, where everything is politicized and there is always division, there has been strong bipartisan support for the defense of Ukraine. And he believes that that will continue, at least for the foreseeable future. The American public has reacted with horror at the efforts of the Russian leadership. And I say the Russian leadership. I don't know if we should be careful with how we describe it. But the Russian leadership, at least, trying to wipe out the identity of a neighboring country and subsume it. Um, But what about in Europe? Is there a fatigue factor to the war? Is there a concern about how long this goes on and how it gets funded and what escalation looks like, what negotiation might look like? I want to bring in someone who works for the Democratization Policy Council in Sarajevo. Joining us from Sarajevo, Dr. Valerie Perry is a researcher and a consultant and a senior associate for the council there. And we have greatly appreciated Dr. Perry's expertise in the past. We welcome her back now. Valerie, thank you for making time for us. Hi, Evan. Thanks for inviting me. And, of course, I'll remind listeners, just a slight delay there as um, as our guest joins us from Sarajevo. But l- let me just start uh, with that question of of the perception of this war. As I said, Valerie, I mean, there, there's there's no there's no obvious, you know, single answer to this. But I do wonder if the general dynamic or the feeling about the duration of this war and what happens next do you suspect it's the feeling is different in in Europe, especially as you move eastern in Europe, versus what most Americans are are perceiving in this war? Uh, sure. No, I, I mean it's it's definitely closer physically. The fact that you can drive to uh, Ukraine, it, depending on where you are, in a couple hours or ten hours from Germany, uh, simply makes it a lot more present and in people's minds, and certainly conjures up images of wars in the 20th century, which, which are very um, resonant. Um, but just as in the United States, while there still is strong support uh, for Ukraine and the Ukrainians in, in their right to uh, determine their own destiny and ensure and protect their own sovereignty, you can see some variance uh, among the various countries in Europe. Um, when you look at the Baltics, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, they are very uh, acutely aware of what's going on and um, very committed to uh, supporting Ukraine because they have their own history of fending off aggression from uh, Russia, from the Soviet Union, and are worried that they could be next on the menu if um, a, a strategy of appeasement is found to work. Poland also uh, was very uh, opening at the very beginning of the uh, aggression of the war with the refugees, is hosting a massive number of refugees and has them in school and is, is supporting them, et cetera, because they also um, have a history of dealing with a very predatory Russia. Um, thinking that some of the countries that uh, are also very supportive, we could see that as soon as the aggression started, Sweden and Finland were both demonstrated their readiness to um, abandon their military neutrality and seek to join NATO, uh, demonstrating the relevance of NATO and also the fact that these uh, wealthy uh, democratic countries recognize that being in that security umbrella is important. Uh, and then when, when you move beyond there, uh, you start to see a bit more variance, though there still is uh, overwhelming support in general for, for Ukraine, though there's fears that this could um, start to weaken as fatigue sets in, especially uh, as year two of the war begins. And, and there's a number of different trends we can see uh, in the other countries in Europe, if, if you'd like to discuss some of those nuances. Yeah, Dr. Perry, I, I think it's also helpful for you to point out to listeners what it is that the, the Democratization Policy Council in Sarajevo sets out to do. Sure. Uh, the Democratization Policy Council, uh, we, we have our European headquarters in Berlin, uh, but two of us are based here in Sarajevo, and we've got a colleague in Brussels, and we also have an associate in Washington, D.C., who's covering issues from the uh, U.S. side. And and essentially, we've been working for years trying to support and advocate for responsible and accountable uh, democratization policies by governments worldwide. It's very easy to say that countries like the United States, Germany, the U.K., et cetera, 
uh, should be involved in supporting uh, democracy, democracy, democratization move movements, human rights movements, etc. But there's not always a consistent um, application of lessons learned uh, in the past informing new policies, new programming, new engagement. And there's not always a, a consistency in doing this. And, and consistency is often uh, lacking in international relations since transactionalism is often easier and is the best way to get a problem off someone's desk during the day. Uh, but we, we believe that having a more accountable democratization uh, policy and really sort of a coalition of countries committed to those values is key if we want to support the um, peace and prosperity we've enjoyed um, for a number of decades and want to have comprehensive security moving forward. If we go back a year, um, it's pretty well reported. And, I, you know, I mean, you always wonder about sourcing, but I think it, it I, I guess I find it plausible that in the Kremlin there was a belief that NATO had weakened, that NATO would, would not show the kind of resolve that it has shown in the last year, that it would not commit to funding and supporting Ukraine's defense in the way that it has. Um, and I, first of all, I do wonder if you agree that, that that was probably the calculus from the Kremlin. Um, and would you have, have been in a very different sense of, of, of how things would go out a year ago? I mean, did you think, look, they're, they're, they're going to test NATO and that's a bad bet because as fractured as the world has been, this this can rally NATO in a way that NATO has not been or the West has not been sort of unified in a long time. Mm -hmm. Sure. No, for, for years, there's been some questions among you know, political scientists and very dull cocktail parties talking about what would be <laughs> the biggest threat to NATO when you look at the different uh, members they're in. And sometimes people will look at something like uh, Turkey, which is a member of NATO, but which has been... Uh, losing any sort of democratic quality over the past 15 years, especially um, under the current President Erdogan. And, and there's other entry points that you can see as well, where the commitment to NATO and the values have not always seen been seen as um, completely committed, perhaps. And there's also been some worries about, like, where would what would the lines be that NATO would take to defend um, its general membership area, uh, the alliance, and also some of the periphery. But I think uh, Ukraine has been an interesting dynamic because you can, you can look at a couple of things that work in tandem, and any one of which would have changed could have completely changed the outcome of the past year. Um, it's very reasonable to think that Putin, for whether out of his own uh, poor analysis or hope or just um, happenstance, could have thought that he could have rolled in without a problem. Um, in 2008, he was able to go into Georgia and um, basically uh, claim some territory there. In 2014, he went into Crimea, and there was no pushback. So it's not unreasonable that he thought he might be able to do this even further than in, in Ukraine, um, in addition to Crimea. And, and one can very easily imagine a scenario that with the uh, miles-long tank convoy outside of Kiev, as it, Kiev, as it was last year, uh, one can imagine that another leader other than uh, Zelensky could have fled. And that would have changed uh, the entire dynamic. It would have made uh, it very possible then for uh, Moscow to go in and um, meddle in the internal affairs in different ways. And it would have also led to a different uh, set of response options um, by Europe, by the United States, etc. And the fact that Zelensky not only stayed but more than rose to the task and was able to rally his own people as well as the West so effectively uh, was really the game changer and forced a recalculation of the military strategy as well as the broader uh, commitment uh, from Putin in terms of the strategy. I think it's not completely surprising either uh, the timing of this because uh, Putin probably rightly assessed that there could be a bit more weaker resolve in the West. Um, when you look at you know, the past 10 years, you know, everything from the financial crisis going on to Brexit, the election of Trump, uh, rising uh, right-wing isolationism in general, even in consolidated established democracies, he may have thought that there wouldn't have been will for this. And um, when you look at the pullout from the Americans from Afghanistan as well, um, this could have been interpreted as a signal that, uh, that the U.S. was looking inward and would not go to bat. Uh, for interests beyond its shores. 
Um, and really it was the courage of Zelensky and the people that pushed back against this uh, narrative and brought us to where we are today. I don't want to spend too much time on Donald Trump, if we could, but I do want to ask you one question about that. Um, and it's about um, mm -hmm. it's about consistency of response versus erratic response. And I ask this because I, I heard some... Um, Early on in Trump's presidency, I heard some conservatives who were sort of queasy about Trump the person make the case that he was so erratic that that might actually be not a bug but a feature, that people didn't know what to expect out of him so they wouldn't test him, that foreign countries wouldn't mess with him because he might be more likely to, uh, to respond in a way that was less predictable and perhaps more painful. And so that was, you know, this ostensible possible feature. Um, I think if we look at the last year, his comments about, especially in the early days, he, you know, he, he said that Putin was acting brilliantly. Uh, you, you know, it, it was I don't, breathtaking to me to see sort of the, the, the sycophant sort of response. Then it kind of, I, I don't know if it was overcompensating, it morphed into him talking about, um, you, you know, flying planes and putting Chinese flags on them and trying to confuse the Chinese military as to who was bombing them. I mean, very strange set of remarks, uh, I guess consistent for him, but erratic nonetheless. And I do wonder if you think that he had won a second term, if this would have played out extremely different, uh, extremely differently. And now with him saying, as he's running for president again, that the world has never been closer to World War III, that kind of rhetoric sort of scares people, but it, it harkens back to his... A Republican National Convention when he was a candidate in 2016, when he said, only I can save you. Only I, um, mm -hmm. you, you know, which kind of runs contrary to the entire ethos of conservatism, but he's kind of doing it again with the, well, if you don't want World War III, you need me. What do you make of the notion of erratic leadership? Um, and, and, and what have you seen otherwise in the last year? Sure. No, I think erratic leadership certainly does make it difficult to uh, strategize, put together policies and plans, et cetera. But vis-a-vis Moscow, Trump was not always that erratic. Um, the affinity he had, the almost respect he had for Putin as a leader, uh, comments about Russia were so overwhelmingly positive in, in, in spite of history and in spite of the many um, uh, violations of uh, human rights, the um, corruption, the oligarchs, etc. It really did sort of defy belief. And and I, we could remember back when there was the famous uh, press conference between Trump and Putin in Helsinki, when Trump basically said that he trusts Putin more than his own intelligence agents. And you could see that Putin, as a former intelligence uh, specialist, recognized that he could really have a soft, a soft touch with this guy in the White House and wouldn't need really to sort of um, be engaged in more traditional military politique in that way. And a second term, one can fairly easily imagine a scenario where there would have been some sort of uh, almost negotiated giveaway of a certain amount of Ukraine sovereignty um, by those countries in a worst-case scenario. So I think that while having a president other than Biden in the White House would have changed things, um, I don't think that would have meant that the, the future would have been any brighter for Ukraine at all when Moscow's aim is to ensure that as much of the Ukrainian history, people, and culture um, is buried and eradicated. Before we kind of go back in time a little bit for what I think will be a very important history lesson from your perspective, um, Valerie, I, I also want to say that, you know, uh, listeners may hear the last couple of hours of conversation and think that, um, th that you know, that the host of this program is, is sort of just uh, overly praising the White House or the response. That, look, I have no expertise in dealing with a crisis this large. All I want are adults in the room anywhere in the world to deal with problems like this. And I don't know if history will eventually say that President Biden and NATO and the West responded well or not. Um, I, I don't know, and because I, I don't know what future actions they will take. I also don't know, just I don't know if anybody really does, um, with the exception of a, a small list of people, just how serious Russia is or the Russian leadership is when they talk about the use of nuclear weapons. And I understand that that is designed to be kind of a paralyzing threat. It's been very effective in the past in certain ways. It's also um, a possible phenomenal bluff. But uh, you, if you don't know that someone is bluffing, it's hard 
to act sometimes. So with all of those sort of things in, kind of in, in the air, Dr. Perry, I, I, w- I would be very interested in your assessment of the appropriate way to handle the next stages of this war, with some forces saying, look, eventually Zelensky and others have to be pushed to negotiate. Eventually this has to end. It can't be funded forever. Um, you know, that, that complete victory doesn't exist. Complete victory could lead to sort of the non- you view these next steps. And, and, you know, are you someone who sort of evaluates when everything's over? Or are you evaluating as we go saying, look, this has been um, um, a, a, a pretty intelligent response to the crisis. Mm-hmm. No, I sometimes I wish I was an historian because then they have the luxury of evaluating when it's over and not having to try to think yes, about things indeed. in real time. And, and I think, and I think that um, in terms of history, I, I think that the very, the extent to which there was such a cohesive and, and certain uh, Western response in support of Ukraine's right to exist and to defend itself against this aggression um, is notable. And I think that the fact that it's held for a year is uh, impressive. And I think last week's visit by Biden to a war zone um, was, was very notable and is going to stay down in the history books and will ensure that the U.S. and Ukraine um, alliance will have a moment that it will always be able to refer to. Um, and, and I think that even though fatigue will set in, um, either naturally over the course of time, if the war does drag out longer, or because of various different domestic or other um, voices who seek to end engagement there. Um, And we can talk about some of the splits we're seeing in the United States right now. Um, When we're looking at the different options in that, about how the war could end, I think it's important to remember that appeasement never works. Um, Leaders, a country that declare war to get territory, who declare war to basically deny a people's right to exist, um, cannot be trusted to have their appetite satisfied if they get what they want. Um, There's absolutely no reason to believe that even if everybody went and said, okay, uh, uh, Ukraine is going to give up Donbass, everything down to Mariupol, and connecting, let's say, down to Crimea, the notion that that's going to um, lead to Moscow saying, okay, we got what we want, they can go ahead and do what they want now, is just laughable. I mean, that's, that's not how appeasement has worked throughout history. And that's why the whole notion of sort of forcing some sort of a negotiation and some sort of a quote-unquote compromise just won't work. Um, a compromise to, made with an aggressor who went into another country's territory um, that involves some sort of a land giveaway is, is a win for the aggressor and would really demonstrate um, a very risky new period in the future if it shows that one needs to simply want it enough and be willing to destroy enough people in home and make enough threats, and then they'll get some couple hundred, couple thousand square uh, kilometers of territory that they can keep and say that they deserve it. And I think that's a future that everyone thought was over in the um, post-World War II world, where the viability of the uh, the inviolability of borders was seen as sovereign. And so that's, that's a route that is very slippery if one wants to have a stable uh, international global system. And I think that's why a lot of people, um, even those who recognize that this should not go on forever, are very leery about um, caving in to the demands of an aggressor like this. I think that the, the one sort of mitigating factor in all of that is, it's, the yes but in all of that is, Yes, but um, we might have to try some sort of appeasement light because talk about erratic behavior um, combined with possible nihilism and nuclear weapons, that's a price too big to risk. And we might have to try to. I, I, and I mm-hmm. think the, the argument also sounds a little bit like this. Um, no one wants appeasement. Some kind of a negotiated settlement might buy more time for either you know, um, some sort of, <laughs> I think, dreamed about change in power in the Russian leadership. Um, also, you know, there's all kinds of debate about Vladimir Putin's health. I, I don't know that anybody really mm-hmm. knows what's going on there. But I, I think it's this idea of we'll buy more time and then we'll, we'll correct course mm-hmm. later once leadership changes. But d- that also sounds to me sure. like you think is, uh, is a futile effort. 
Well, there's a couple of things I would say to that. First is that the notion of appeasing to buy time and saying, well, we'll get some sort of an interim agreement that's good enough for now um, has been shown in a lot of different examples to lead to a consolidated um, a consolidated and unsatisfactory middle ground uh, that ends up hurting the country that's been uh, partitioned in a way. And we can talk a bit about how this has happened in the Balkans, but interim agreements have a way of becoming permanent. And some frozen conflicts that can uh, stem from them will then explode at some point in the future because the putting a lid on top of some of these troubled issues um, doesn't go away. And um, it does not lead, I mean, we've got a lot of different examples of where this just has not really led to a stable situation. Um, thinking about with Russia, I mean, yeah, Putin's 70, and there's rumors about him being sick, etc. But I think we also need to think um, just beyond the leader. Uh, I think a lot of countries, and the U.S. in particular, very often put so much hope uh, and credibility and support and money into leaders. And um, without recognizing the fact that there's a whole institutional uh, issue and network that we need to keep in mind. And in, in Russia, what's really going to be troubling is that Putin is doing a very good job of destroying the social capital and the human capital of his own country um, through either the brain drain that's been going on, um, but also through the way he's been destroying the, own inst the institutions in the country. So there's really no reason for us to think that if Putin was gone, that a more rational, uh, more liberal, democratic minded leader would come up in their place. And, and in fact, we're seeing some really uh, troubling trends in, in in Russia right now, both in terms of the way Putin's been institutionalizing criminality throughout the system, either through kleptocracy and oligarchs, which have been uh, modus operandi of his support for years, but also now we're seeing what happens when some of the freed convicts who went to work with, went to battle with the, the Wagner uh, mercenary group have done their time, have seen battle for six months, and are now going back to their communities. And this is going to have a huge impact on those communities, especially small communities, um, which already don't have institutions, trust, free media, or any of the things you need to have a cohesive society. And Russia itself, while being the aggressor in this, is going to be fighting um, a certain trauma, a collective trauma for, for some time because of what's going on. So, so I think it's wrong to think that if Putin was magically gone, then everything would be okay and we wouldn't have to worry about Ukraine. The, the brainwashing that's going on right now in the media, in textbooks, in elementary schools, et cetera, is creating an entirely new revisionist narrative that people in Russia are marinating in. Uh, some people know it's not true, that it's a lie, uh, but can't speak up. But other people are hearing it. If you hear enough uh, misinformation and fake news 24-7, it seeps in. And so that's going to be more collateral damage uh, in Russia. Um, in terms of the nuclear threat, um, I mean, I think, yes, it's, it's a great threat to make because then all of a sudden everyone says, no, okay, we can't push him too hard because he's crazy and he might hit the button. Um, I haven't read too many assessments of Putin being suicidal, um, but I think he's also strategic enough to recognize what that would do more broadly. Um, right now, when you look at his, um, his own allies, I mean, who, who's he got? He's got Iran, he's got China. China, for one, doesn't want a nuclear war. That wouldn't hurt them. It would hurt their business model. And it would throw a very large country that's no longer experiencing the rapid growth they had gotten accustomed to into more economic poverty that might not be able to be uh, maintained. And I think it's worth considering that while China had its own reasons for offering this 12-point peace plan uh, recently for Ukraine, um, which... Again, Zelensky did not uh, dismiss out of hand, um, but noted that it, he wasn't going to accept it uh, in full cloth either. The very first point was respecting the sovereignty of all countries. And that is something that Russia precisely did not do in the case of Ukraine. Um, and if you look down at the points in the Chinese peace plan, there's also um, a note about the importance of keeping supply chains and industry stable. And so if, if China recognizes that the continuation of this war, that the escalation of this war could affect supply chains and industry, so much that they put it into a 12-point peace plan for Kyiv, then you recognize um, that they may have some sway um, on Putin in certain ways. 
Now, that doesn't mean that the threat is gone. I mean, um, the president of Belarus is visiting China, and there are some concerns about what this could mean. However, I think um, China will not do something that's not in China's interest. Nuclear war is not in their interest. And they will be considering very long and hard what the impact would be if they began selling arms to Russia to use in Ukraine, because I think there's a recognition that that would be a very big escalation and would also have a lot of uh, economic uh, repercussions that would hurt them at home. Talking to Valerie Perry, a researcher and a consultant and a senior associate for the Democratization Policy Council in Sarajevo. Um, Rich, I'm going to take your phone call in just a second. And listeners, if you've got feedback, questions, comments, you can call the program toll-free, 844-295-TALK. It's 844-295-8255, 263-WXXI if you're calling from Rochester, 263-9994. You can email the program connections at wxxi.org. Thank you to listeners for a little bit of your patience with um, just a short delay uh, with our connection with Dr. Perry. Uh, Valerie is in Sarajevo, and we are grateful for her time and willingness to join the program and and lend her expertise. Um, And so uh, best connection we can get, but we are grateful for that. So thanks, listeners, for that. Let me get Rich in Rochester on the phone. Hi, Rich. Go ahead. Hey, uh, how you doing? Uh, Good, sir. Uh, um, this is a great discussion. I, there's a couple of points I want to make. The first one is that I think we're we're making a strategic error in this sense that historically, when you when you have a military buildup, i.e., as we're doing now, because we're we're doing basically the same thing we did in Vietnam and all these places, it ends up exacerbating the situations. I think we just have to throw our hats in as much as we can because. Europe has found out that 30 years, 40 years of not replenishing their their weapon supplies and their ammunition has been a bad thing. Maybe they finally learned from that. Um, but I think we need to just decide, okay, we're going to support this country in this war and give them what they need to win. Because if we keep this up, we're going to stay at this stalemate with, this, with the dumbass and all that. And to Zelensky's point, I don't think they need – I don't think they – we have a right to say to them they need to negotiate. I really don't. Um, I think there's a – with the whole thing with the nuclear war, with the nuclear war, I really think it's a bluff. I, there's no way you could look in any sense of – sense. you can't say Putin is – even though this is a bad move, he's a very strategic and technical guy from his, his days, his training. There, there's nothing that he can win in a nuclear war. It puts him nowhere in using nuclear weapons. I, I just don't see him doing that. Is he going to call the bluff? Yeah. Is he going to, is he going to, um, the bravado? Can we just totally ignore that? But I think we need to, we need to work as if he is going to be, um, he won't use him. And also I think China, I think China knows unless they're looking at Taiwan, they know the worst thing they can do is to support Russia with weaponry. And also Europe needs to learn a lesson. They can't just, you can't have 15 bullets in your, in your, in your um, storage and have nothing to, to fight a war. Because wars will happen. I think Europe's made a huge mistake by not keeping their stocks replenished. Rich, I appreciate the phone call. Yeah, yeah, a lot there. Thank you, Rich. What do you think, Valerie? Uh, No, I'm glad that Rich raised the notion of the West effectively supplying Ukraine with with weapon systems and ammunition, et cetera, now. And whether or not what we're sending is enough for them to sort of hold the line versus enough for them to win. And and that's going to be the discussion uh, in 2023, is whether or not they're getting what they need to win. And we've seen from the beginning um, a a ramp up in terms of the recognition of what's necessary, but also what the Ukrainians are capable of effectively deploying in terms of um, eventually getting to them uh, HIMARS, Patriot systems, et cetera. And one can reasonably wonder whether or not they will get um, more air support, F-16s, et cetera, to be able to do this. And while the Biden administration and, and also European countries, to a lesser extent, have been promising more tanks and more systems, et cetera, the challenge now is also going to be delivery of these systems and also production. Um, while a lot of this would be a windfall for many American uh, military, industrial uh, companies, et cetera, 
it, it takes time to build these. It's not like there's tons of stocks of all of this there. And so that's something that requires some strategic planning as well in terms of what can be delivered when uh, and when can it be most effective. And, and I think that looking right now at what is widely being seen as a possible spring offensive, uh, we're going to start to sort of see uh, what can be delivered there and how Ukrainians can be trained to effectively use them uh, uh, quickly. Um, yes, so that, that would be a, that, that will be one of the things that will define uh, the war in 2023. And just, uh, just to comment on, on Europe as well, um, I, it is still the case that Europe is spending less than the uh, assumed or necessary GDP, uh, percentage of GDP on its own defense. But we are starting to see some changes with this. I think, again, uh, Germany is starting to um, discuss a more aggressive policy, which is uh, very different than the defense posture they had for years after World War II. And again, having Sweden and Finland in NATO will also uh, boost that alliance while creating some different opportunities to ensure that all the members uh, pay their fair share. When we come back from our only brief break of the hour, uh, Valerie Perry from the Democratization Policy Council in Sarajevo joining us to talk about some of the history that we ought to think about. What did happen at the end of the Cold War? Um, when we think about how we got here, what happened throughout the 90s into the aughts? And did that set the stage? Is this really, uh, is so much of this the, the, the power of one person who has power and concentrated power? Or were there missteps at the end of the Cold War? Are there lessons to learn there? We'll talk about what comprehensive security looks like when we talk about Scandinavian countries wanting to join NATO and suddenly concerned um, and, and looking for, I think, more assurances. What does this look like as we move forward from uh, eventually, we all hope, an end of this war? So we'll come back with Dr. Perry at the other side of this only break. I'm Evan Dawson. Tuesday on The Next Connections. Editing Roald Dahl. Editing the James Bond series. Changing passages or words that decades later have a different tone or meaning to them. A smart idea or a kind of censorship? People from the literary world join us to weigh in. And lots of ways to get in touch with us on the program here. We mentioned uh, the email address, connections at WXXI.org. You can find us on social media like Twitter at Evan Dawson or at MMacMedia for producer Megan Mack, who has been tweeting some of the photos from our colleague, Mikhail Gerstein. Mikhail visited his native Ukraine for the better part of a month this fall and has shared a lot of uh, his travels with us. And we're sharing some of those images if you want to see them uh, on Megan's Twitter. It's at M. Mac Media. Valerie Perry, we go back to, you know, in the early 1990s, the end of the Cold War. And one of the things that, that I've heard, one of the ideas I've heard quite often in the last year is, you know, if we would have just done more to rebuild Russia, if we, we wouldn't have humiliated them, if we would have brought them more into the international community, then, um, then maybe we wouldn't be here today. Uh, I, I, I do wonder what you make of that. I also on the other side of that, I, I've heard from economists and um, political scientists who've said that the assumption for decades was that trade, trade itself, was going to be an insulator mm -hmm. against war. Um, and, um, and so here we are. So, so what do you make of, of those ideas and, and how do you see what happened, especially at the end of and, and, and the post-Cold War sort of years there? Mm -hmm. no, that's what's going to be the interesting book to see in the next uh, 10, 20 years or so, because I see uh, just a lot of missed opportunities. I mean, there was a certain euphoria that was um, often very irrational in many ways when the Cold War was over and the West felt that it won. And, um, and there wasn't any recognition of the fact that when the Cold War was over, it didn't mean that all these countries would suddenly become democratic capitalist states. But there were a lot of different paths that could be taken. Uh, we saw that a number of the countries in Eastern Europe, uh, the Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia, Poland, the Baltics, etc., were able to join the EU, join NATO fairly, uh, fairly quickly. And they were the countries that really benefited from making progress quickly after the end of the Cold War and before a number of different global phenomena started to set in. Because what we saw was that uh, let's, if we let's look at 1989, 1991, when we started to sort of really see the Iron Curtain come down, 
you had about 10 years before you had 9-11 happen, which really had an impact on the way the United States, but also the world, was viewing the, the new uh, world order. Uh, for some time in the 90s, there was actually much more work done on developing a model of comprehensive security, which was based not only on military might, but on a more intricate basket of um, human rights, human security, economic and environmental protection, as well as political rights. Um, there was also a recognition that there was a need to ensure that people who were being killed by their own government um, needed some sort of a redress in terms of uh, protection from the world. And there was an effort for a time called the right to protect, the responsibility to protect, sorry, which was aimed at ensuring uh, that there'd be a way to avoid another um, Bosnia, another Rwanda, etc. But this responsibility for, to protect ended up being sidelined after 9-11, the global war on terror, and all of the, the dynamics that came with that, and really pushed the U.S. and its allies away from a more aspirational order of comprehensive security for all. And when you add on to that, then the financial crisis in 2007-8, um, and the impact that that had on populations all over the world, including in consolidated democracies, um, you could begin to really see how there was space for a much more isolationist, often right-wing and disaffected population to, to rise in these countries and start to affect domestic policies as well as foreign policy. And in all of these all of these dynamics really come together to sh unfortunately show that there had been a missed opportunity in terms of understanding what was necessary to try to make the most of uh, the post-Cold War world. And I would just mention, I'm, I'm glad you said trade, because there was a, there, there was a huge fast-track shock therapy to go into um, the former Soviet Union, to go into Russia, to go into other countries privatize uh, the heck out of everything, believing that that was going to unleash entrepreneurship and mom-and-pop businesses, et cetera. Um, but there wasn't a sufficient understanding that doing that in the absence of the rule of law, in the absence of contracts, in the absence of social trust, et cetera, would lead to kleptocracy and oligarchy. And there's often this, um, there's a saying I hear often um, from diplomats who want to privatize in different countries where they say, well, look, Valerie, they can only steal it once. But what we've seen is that stealing it once can create such a political advantage that it can't be overcome. We saw this happen in the Soviet Union. We saw this happen in, in Afghanistan with a lot of the uh, decisions made that enriched leadership but did nothing for the people. And it really is time to recognize that that really fed a lot of the weak democratic movements that really affected the failure to develop independent media, rule of law, et cetera, and really stunted these countries. And now we're dealing with those consequences. And, and Russia did not need to turn out this way. But because of the confluence of, of privatization, lack of uh, institutional rule of law, lack of recognition that our attention to human rights and governance should have been exactly as important, if not more important, than trying to get McDonald's into Red Square. Um, and, and that's what really brought us where we are today. And, and this isn't the only part of the world. We're having similar problems in the Western Balkans um, and elsewhere. And, and we just need to learn that lesson. So what does learning that lesson actually look like going forward? How do you sort of undo some of the damage that you perceive and and, and build towards a more sustainable future? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, I, I'd say two things. is If we focus really on uh, the transatlantic relationship, which I would call you know, the countries that are in NATO, but then also the European Union. We've got this community of democracies of the European Union, U.S., Canada, Australia, Switzerland, Norway, and Japan, and a handful of others. And I think there really is a need to by these countries to recognize that their own clubs of democracies need to be strengthened internally um, and consolidated and ensure that they can push back against some of the authoritarian and anti-democratic trends that they're seeing within their own countries. For example, you can see that happening in Hungary within the European Union. But I know a lot of analysts note that they're troubled to see what's going on right now in terms of undermining the judiciary um, by Netanyahu and his government in Israel. Uh, which weaken, substantially can weaken the fabric uh, of a democratic state. 
Uh, so working on countries who are already in the club is necessary, but also making sure that there's an effective approach and strategy towards dealing with countries that um, are aspiring uh, for a, a stronger democratic system and membership in these club, clubs is critical. And unfortunately, right now in, in the Western Balkans, so this would be countries like uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, Montenegro, Ma North Macedonia, Serbia, Albania, um, we are seeing a serious backsliding in terms of democratic consolidation uh, and democratic accountability. And unfortunately, we're seeing that uh, the American, uh, the British, and the EU is not learning the lessons from the past. There's still an unfortunate readiness to make short-term transactional deals with some elites who don't share the values of democracy, who don't share uh, the values of human rights protection, minorities protection, etc., and yet are having their reputations laundered in a way um, by a West who just really wants to sort of keep everything calm in the Western Balkans so they can focus on Ukraine. Um, a couple of days ago at the UN, there was a resolution uh, condemning the aggression in um, Ukraine, and this was good. And we're seeing that um, a country like Serbia supported this, while at the same time, they are doing little to ensure that their own country and their own people actually recognize that Russia is the aggressor in this case and Ukraine is the victim. Um, there is a very strong Russophilia in, in Serbia and among some of its um, satellite uh, areas in the region, which is extremely damaging because it's going to uh, stunt democratic development in the long term and make it more difficult for voices of progress, voices of moderation, to emerge because it's linking together a revisionist history and um, a pseudo-cultural and ideological um, battle that we've also seen uh, Putin use in Russia, where he basically is trying to separate Russia from the West, what he sees as decadent, and instead um, hearken this notion of conservative values of church, family, and tradition. Um, let me get a little listener feedback. Cameron wants to know, what does your guest think China's game is in all this? You touched on that a little bit already here. Um, but in the bigger picture, is um, more of the Chinese support? I'm, I'm going to freelance a little off Cameron's question and ask you something more specific, but give you plenty of space to talk about China. Um, do you think that the, the Chinese support for Russia in this war is more about creating sort of a, a client state setup where they get some subservience and they get some more sway? Or is it because they have an eye on Taiwan and they see, you know, some kind of um, um, a, a pertinence to the outcome here relating to their own future efforts? Mm -hmm. so, well, China will certainly have a, an inclination to support authoritarian systems um, because that makes it easier for them to maintain their own authoritarian system at home. And so even before um, recent weeks and months, I mean, China has been a bit more on, on the Russia side of the ledger than on the Ukraine um, because of that um, basic authoritarian affinity. However, that being said, again, China would not benefit from massive escalation if you look at um, its economy, if you look at its position in the world, et cetera, and probably wouldn't want to support um, escalation that would hurt its own uh, aims uh, abroad and at home. And again, I think that this peace plan that they floated that specifically seeks to respect sovereignty of all countries is a reminder of how much they want to keep that front and foremost. The fact that they don't want to create a precedent where you know some countries could go into Tibet, for example, and um, their interest is much more in Taiwan than it is on anything going on in Kiev or Moscow, and that's going to be front and foremost in its mind. Um, the whole spy balloon um, fiasco of, of the recent weeks is interesting as well because in, in some ways you can almost look at them sort of getting caught out. You know, they've been doing this for a while. People, the regular public didn't know about it. Now they do. And so it's, it's, in many ways it's kind of a good time for them to try to look like they're statesmanlike by offering a peace plan, but also that they're willing to entertain um, diplomats and leaders like from Belarus in their own territory, try to look like a player. So, so I think overall, I mean, 
if their interest in Taiwan, one is Taiwan, and if people in Taiwan are um, very legitimately worried about their designs on the island, um, it's difficult to see why throwing the world into complete and utter chaos by throwing their weight behind Russia and then incurring the economic sanctions and possible, possible military escalation of the West would help them. Uh, let me also ask you to kind of circle back to something else you've touched on, but you know, you, you've indicated numerous times this hour that there are different conditions in different nations with what how they are responding to the war, whether there's sort of a Russophilia in certain countries or what the state is saying about this aggression in certain places. When you look at beyond just Russia, Ukraine, what are your biggest concerns with um, illiberalism, uh, to, use a phrase, to use a word that I think you've used? No, sure. No, I, I worry um, about a liberalism in the European Union, but then also in the United States. Um, in the EU, we're seeing a situation where, um, in particular, Hungary, uh, which became a member of the EU to much acclaim, it was seen as really being a success story economically and in terms of its political situation, is now very illiberal, is aligning itself with other liberal partners, would like to see expansion Europeans to include a liberal partner such as Serbia, because that way they would have more sway within the EU itself. And in this demonstrating that um, democratization, human rights, protection, and um, progress are not uh, linear, but can be uh, reversible. And the, a lot of people in the United States and in Brussels hadn't seen that one coming. They had thought that once you got in the club, once you're a democracy, you were done, and things couldn't reverse. And yet now there's a model uh, for how this can happen and how it can be called democratic. Uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary showed this brilliantly over the past 10, 12 years in terms of basically playing with the courts and the Constitution in the way that the country's a democracy on paper, but in reality it's not. Uh, he's also gerrymandered a lot. I'm, I'm not sure what the word gerrymander would be in Hungarian, but he's using it to quite some success and has managed to really um, consolidate power. And, and we see different right-wing trends in different parts of um, the European Union as well. And you see that a lot of these um, illiberals um, are talking to each other and meeting with each other and recognizing that they can learn from one another and find ways to uh, use information or disinformation to send their messages. Uh, their messages of, you know, family and tradition and faith, etc., sound good to a lot of people until you recognize that they're often brought together with um, a lot of uh, repression against minorities, a lot of rollback against the rights of women, and um, a lot of rollbacks in terms of different issues like freedom of assembly, speech, and um, expression. Um, when I look at the United States, it's going to be interesting to see how 2023 and 2024 roll out, because I think if, if I was Zelensky, I'd be hoping that this war could be won uh, to the interest of Ukraine before 2024 in light of the fact that no one knows what's going to happen in the United States. And we're already seeing a weird confluence on the extreme left and the extreme right in terms of an anti-war movement in the U.S. And while the vast majority of uh, Congress people and senators in the U.S. are still supporting um, the war and supporting uh, the Biden administration and uh, uh, supporting it, um, we are seeing that people like DeSantis and others are starting to question it and plant those seeds of doubt. And that is going to be amplified um, by uh, various news outlets, by various websites, etc. And it's going to plant seeds of isolationism, which, even though completely divorced from reality, are going to create potentials for schisms. And we can very reasonably expect that these will be further exploited as well by various bots and misinformation campaigns we've seen from Moscow and other places in past elections. Yeah, and um, it's kind of what they would call the horseshoe effect in politics and uh, far left and far right. I would say mm -hmm. when Valerie says anti-war, it's it's less... I mean, I, I understand exactly what Valerie is saying. I, I interpret it to mean um, against support for Ukraine, against Russia's war of choice, and um, almost... Uh, uh, again, syc sycophantic in the way that John Mearsheimer has been, in the way that Glenn Greenwald, Michael Tracy, there's a long list of folks um, who might not be viewed as right wing, but are um, 
Mm-hmm. You know, sort of using the same kind of rhetoric that Tucker Carlson uses. So um, let me read one more email. I'll, I'll sneak sure. this one in here under the line. Tim in Pittsford says, I'm in total agreement that we should support Ukraine every step of the way. If a bully pushes someone around, then they need someone to help them push back. That's us. But didn't this affect Europe directly? Germany's military is robust and could take a lead there with the help of Poland, France, and to a degree the British with our help. Those countries have direct economic and land dealings with Russia. They need to help more economically and militarily with our help and support. That's Tim in Pittsford. Got a minute left, Valerie. What do you think? Um, sure, no. And I, I, again, I think that the discussion and debate about how much um, money the various countries in Europe are putting into their militaries remains, remains an issue. And we're starting to see some progress on it. But one of the uh, challenges of uh, democratic states is that if the people don't support that, politicians aren't going to be ready to, um, to argue uh, for those higher taxes and those higher defense budgets. But this has been a wake-up call that it's necessary. Um, I would also remind as well that while the United States has taken in a number of Ukrainian refugees, I mean, the vast bulk of them are in Europe. And so you've got either volunteers or different governments putting these kids in school, putting them into the health system, and, and paying a lot for the human side of the cost of war. And so our helping on that sense as well. And, and I think that in, in general, I mean, the, the reason uh, we've really had economic prosperity, social prosperity, cultural growth in the uh, decades since World War II is precisely because we had this transatlantic security umbrella that was hard won from World War II and the carnage therein, and which has managed to create a certain amount of stability that was based on a shared set of values. And the shared set of values, again, is that people should be able to elect the leaders they want, those leaders should be held accountable, and that human rights should not be negotiable. And that needs to be what we're fighting for as much as the Ukrainian people. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Valerie Perry. Valerie is a researcher and consultant and senior associate for the Democratization Policy Council in Sarajevo, hanging in there with the phone line quality and the delay. Thank you, Valerie, for the expertise. We always appreciate the conversation. I certainly wish we didn't have to talk about this stuff, but thank you for being here with us today. Thank you, Evan. Outstanding work from Valerie, as always. And listeners, uh, this is your program as well. So uh, we hope that you continue to let us know the kinds of conversations about this war that you want to see on this on this program. Two moving hours today. From the whole team at Connections, it's Evan and Rob and Megan saying thanks for listening. We're back with you tomorrow on member-supported public radio. <laughs>